This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Amy Beth Shaver. I hope you are well. This is an episode that, as you can tell, Larry's already like typing things. Um, This is a critical show. And so I invite you to perhaps stop what you're doing or remember in the recording where you learned what you were about to learn, because today's show is what you need to know about Marxism. And I'm intrigued. I'm distressed. But this is an educational opportunity. I invite you to join us. Um, But before we get to that, how are you, sir? Good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm very good. Glad to be here. Glad it's sunny. It's hot as fire outside. It is. And uh, this has been a show that has been a real challenge to get recorded. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it has. Which means, hopefully... um, That it was worthwhile. It was worthwhile. Uh, Here's hoping for the best, right? Yep, yep. But I believe it will be. I think so. Uh, I think it's extremely important. I think people know a little bit, you know, around the edges about Marxism, but I don't think they fully grasp or understand. And that's your expertise. Um, People know you from the um, Islam space. They also know you in the worldview space, but also Marxism. And I think this is a critical episode, um, one that I believe will get shared um, across all platforms because it's that important. I, I hope so. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's hope we're equal to the task. <laughs> no pressure at all. Um, but I do have a fun question, and that is, who are the voices on your intro? You know, it's funny. When we were putting this intro together, uh, you know, if you have people who are saying, hey, we'd, we'd like this kind of intro. We think it should have this. We think it should have that. And I thought, you know, I have a few ideas that – we could use to um, kind of fill that space. The very first voice that you hear is this is a piece by a guy named you know Larry Taunton. That's Rush Limbaugh. Um, it is. Uh, it was when he was reading one of my pieces over the air. He read the whole thing, and I have to say this about Rush: um, all kinds of accusations. He was an egomaniac. He was all these. Rush Limbaugh could have the way a lot of people do. By the way, they'll lift your ideas. Hmm. Um, but attribute them to themselves. Um, so uh, they, 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 they basically just kind of reword what you say, that they've read in an article. You know the idea was yours, but they pass it off as their own. Rush did no such thing. Rush says, this is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N. He is the author of The Grace Effect, the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation, and this piece is in USA Today. Then he read the entire thing and made commentary on it. Then at the end, he again stated my name. So I was so grateful for Rush um, for doing that. And uh, we have his brother, David Limbaugh, to thank for that because I asked David if he could get me that clip. And he said, you know, he was pretty sure that he could. And and he did. I think another um, voice that you hear in there is, you know, the Hick from Bama. Yes. Um, that English accent, that is Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist and journalist. That's from our debate in, uh, I think it was 2010. And uh, Christopher, um, I had gotten up and, you know, I was using 
you know what Southerns do? I, Southerners do. I was sandbagging, and I was saying, "Look, I I don't have, I don't <laughs> you have, sandbag." <laughs> I said, I, "I don't have, you know, the impressive, you know, Oxford pedigree. I don't have the the English accent. I, you know, who am I to be debating Christopher Hitchens?" And he got up and said, "You know, don't buy this Hick from Bama routine. Uh, don't buy it." Which is very funny. So we use that, and then. Who else do we have in there? Oh, and then we have Gene Stallings. Of course you do. Roll Tide. In Roll Tide. Gene Stallings um, in there, which, by the way, Roll Tide makes repeated appearances in this new Amazon series called The Terminal List with Chris Pratt. But your Chris needs to watch it. It's interesting. It's dark, but it's interesting. But yes, that was Coach Gene Stallings who says, I thought he was dead. That's... <laughs> That is so. <laughs> that cracks is, me up. Is so funny every time. Yeah, I'm driving home, one of my trips to West Virginia to get one of our daughters, and I was listening to that intro. I was listening actually to your series on Islam, and that cracked me up. That he, literally cracked me he up. He had more fun with that. We were to, he invited us to his ranch <laughs> last fall, and uh, while I was there, I thought you know we were thinking about doing this podcast. I thought it'd be fun to have him say a few things. And he took the mic, you know, we had a mic there just like this, and he took it and he sat down in a chair. And of course, the guy's given a million interviews, so he knows how this goes. And he was just started rolling out all these funny things. And he'd say, let me repeat that one for you again. And then he'd say it again. And anyway, we thought they were hilarious. So we've got a few others from him. Stallings was famous for never saying who his favorite player was. So he gave us a clip where he says, well, Larry, he was my favorite player. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It is funny. That's very funny. Well, I enjoy that intro. It's super creative. Actually, uh, in a minute when we head to break, I have an idea. I'm not going to share it live. Uh, you'll have to just stay tuned for it. Um, but then th there's another segment because your mind constantly works. Um as the notes he's writing as we come into the show today, right? Um, but there's another segment that you've introduced that I appreciate, um, and it's called the ABS segment. And so how about, like, what's the genesis of that? Yeah, well, you know, your name, Amy Beth Shaver, ABS. When I, when I see that monogram, ABS, I immediately think of the little red light that comes on my dash every time I press the brakes, a little circle with ABS in it, um, and it means automatic braking system. So, you know, I thought it would be fun to have a segment that's all about those things in the culture that set off Amy Beth Shaver, where Amy Beth Shaver is pumping the brakes and saying, whoa, 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 this is something we have to discuss. So with that in mind... The ABS moments of the day. ABS, Automatic Braking System, also known as Amy Beth Shaver, pumps the brakes. So, ABS, um, what is our Automatic Braking System moment of the week? All right, try this on for size. Bless your heart. Okay. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. <laughs> I think you do know where this is going, but I would like to add a caveat because I've had time to think because this has been a whole thing. Is the bless your heart combined, and I think maybe the Bible verses on vicious emails also could be in that whole bless your heart space, okay? But it's bless your heart, and it's in the Southern vernacular means you big dummy. 
yeah. is really what that means. I mean, give, a, give, give those who aren't Southerners, give them an example of how okay. Bless Your okay. Heart works. So if you are a young mom and you are in the store and perhaps you have your two daughters who are hanging out of the cart at your Aldi, Walmart, wherever you shop, Price Club, I don't care. And someone comes up to you and says, oh, look, either they have no shoes on at all, they're dressed like Cinderella, or their shoes are on the wrong feet. Bless your heart. <laughs> and they expect you to just go, yes. And except for me, I would look at them and go, you know what? They have clothes on and they have shoes on. So great. Or perhaps it could be on the, the field of play. It could be basketball, soccer, field hockey. I don't care. But it's when a parent notices that your child makes a mistake and they're like, oh, aren't they so cute when they mess up? Bless their heart. And you just know that the thought bubble is really saying, you big dummy or failure of a human being. Or in grown-up life, as an adult, people will say things to you and cloak it in the sweetest terms. They don't like what you wrote. Southern women are good at this. Oh, Southern women are terrific. It is our, gosh, it's our calling card. <laughs> or they, they, you know, they don't like what you wrote, or they think that you completely missed your column, or they missed your yep. thought piece, or what. They didn't really like what you said on the news. And they'll add all of their ideas and then bless your heart. But the favorite, though, is the bless your heart with some Bible verses, yeah, or I'm going to pray for you, or I love you. I tell you this in love. Oh, my word. This has me triggered Your children this week. are so stupid, bless their hearts. Yes. You yeah. know, you're supposed to it smile is, and uh, take it. It is a velvet glove over an iron fist. Uh, yes, that is true. Yes, in the, in the Southern vernacular, and Southern women can cut your throat with a smile. Oh, they can yes. smile the whole way through and use the the the... The sweetest sounding voice is they are doing you in. That is uh, that is true. So you're saying you don't like bless bless your heart. I loathe that phrase. Okay. Um, now look, I'll probably say it seven times this weekend um, and convict myself. But I believe that it is. It's that the thing that I like about I've got a lot of family up north, and they will tell it to you straight. I appreciate that. Yeah. But in the south, we we cloak and dagger what we're saying, and we're smiling at you. And sometimes I don't know if this has happened to you, but you walk away and you're like, "Holy cow! They just completely insulted me." And yeah. Do I feel a machete in my back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I may. Um, but this week, it has happened to Chris and I several times, and I thought that's it. That's the ABS of the week. So yeah. the next time you want to say, you know, bless your heart, how about peel back and just say what you really, say what or you really mean, or don't, or don't, or don't, or just reel it back in. Yeah, maybe Th thinking maybe it's not your said. place to say. It. You know, I, this has given me an idea for another segment of the show. We could call it the bless your heart segment. Please, could the we? The bless your heart segment. Nancy Pelosi is so stupid. Bless her heart. <laughs> I think that is a great idea. Yes. The, the, Joe Biden yes. is so evil. Bless his heart. Yes, please. You know, I think we could have a funny segment. The bless your heart segment. And it could focus on, you know, crazy leftists. Okay. I say yes. I think I think we could do that. Done. And we, done. we need to get a, a voice actor to give us what well, we need a voice actress um, to give us um, that nice little, you know, you could do it, you know, a nice little bless your heart. There you go. That's, that's the kind of voice we need. <laughs> we need to um, a little more breathy, just a little more breathy. Let's hear it one more time. Bless your heart. <laughs> there we go. Bless just your heart. Bless into, your heart. Leading us into a yeah. segment like that. Okay. Yeah, I'm with okay. you on that. That's, okay. that's, that's, that's a good thing to pump the brakes on.
Uh, you know, it just happened. I think things are happening to me now. Uh, we have started a list. I just want you to know. So it doesn't end there, but you'll have to stay tuned week to week uh, for the list that I have. Um, Chris loves to text from work and go, oh, this would be another one. Yeah. So we're just going to explore that space. So thank you for that. Tell him to keep um, them coming. But the shavers were triggered and we had a whole lunch around Bless Your Heart this week. So you'll get more of them as you associate with me more. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Then let's dig in. Okay. Now, that that is great fun. And it may be the last time we laugh um, all show because <laughs> we are diving into the subject of Marxism. And we've talked about it before. Yep. We've danced we'll around it, it. And we'll talk about it again because it's invaded church vernacular. It's invaded school curriculums. We hear the words for the common good. We don't think a thing about it um, unless, of course, you're you and you're studying and you're thinking, holy cow, do people even know what they're saying? And perhaps we don't know what we're saying, but could we start out by simply defining the terms, what does Marxism mean? Where did it come from for those who just need a reminder? Um, And then we will dive into powerful testimony We'll make that available to you in show notes because it's enough that you need to read it a couple of times to really sink into um, what this pastor had to say back in the 60s and his life experience. But let's define terms. And Well, I'll tell you what we will do. Let's take a break. Okay. And when we take this break, we're going to show a short video. Okay. Um, you, can, you can listen to it, of course, in your car. We're going to show a short video, and then we're going to meet you on the other side of that video and pick up this show okay. on the other side of that. How's that? Let's do it. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. In the mid-1990s, when I was a graduate student studying history, specifically European history, Russian history, and Marxism, people would say to me that this was a dead end. I mean, the Berlin Wall had fallen by this time. The Soviet Union had collapsed. And yet, here we are now seeing Marxism uh, infiltrate segments of our own society. So I thought it might be helpful to explain to you what Marxism is. What is Marxism? Prussian political theorist and revolutionary Karl Marx didn't invent the idea of socialism any more than Planned Parenthood invented abortion, but each put their own evil stamp on these practices. Socialism, which may be loosely defined as the equitable redistribution of wealth, has no absolute beginning. Marxism is Marx's particular variation on the theme. His contributions to socialism were chiefly in systematizing it, popularizing it, and militarizing it. Just as Darwin saw in guided biological processes at work in natural history, Marx likewise believed that impersonal economic forces were driving human history. History would move irresistibly from one economic stage to another until it reached the utopian socialist stage called communism. Marx called these mysterious evolutionary forces of history dialectical materialism. To help these forces along, Marx declared that workers of the world must unite and overthrow the ruling classes in violent revolution. But such revolts were few in number and were easily defeated by their respective governments. And Marx, who was rightly seen as an instigator, was expelled from half the countries of Europe. In 1849, he moved to London. There he found a labor force that had been calling for socialism in one form or another long before anyone had ever heard of Karl Marx. Full of revolutionary fire, 
Marx preached his famous message of bloody revolution in the expectation that the laborers, called proletarians in Marx speak, would rise up and burn the country to the ground. But it didn't happen. British laborers, though receptive to Marx on many levels, were largely uninterested in Marxism. It wasn't that socialism had no appeal to them. It did. Rather, they rejected the violence Marx demanded. They hoped to achieve their goals via democratic means. They had good reason to be hopeful. A series of parliamentary reform measures saw both improved working conditions and the expansion of the electorate. Furthermore, a robust, Bible-centered Christianity flourished in Britain in a way it simply did not in continental Europe. When asked the name of the person he most detested, Marx's equally fanatical colleague, Friedrich Engels, said, Spurgeon. This was a telling reference to the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who regularly drew London audiences of more than 10,000. Royalty and proletarians alike were drawn to his straightforward messages of forgiveness, hope, and meaning to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Ingalls well understood that a people who possess these things do not, as a rule, overthrow governments. But it wasn't just Spurgeon. This was also the Britain of William Booth's juggernaut, the Salvation Army, which pioneered large-scale Christian benevolence. The Christian faith of the working class went far to satisfy the needs of the soul. These simply were not a people possessed of the revolutionary spirit that Marx demanded. Embittered, Marx broke with socialists in Britain while continuing to predict a workers' uprising in the industrialized countries of the West until his death in 1883. But it didn't happen. Inter-Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci. Marx's prediction of revolution led to disillusionment among subsequent Marxists who awaited that day the way Heaven's Gate cult members awaited the Hale-Bopp Comet. While languishing in one of Mussolini's prisons, the dwarfish Gramsci filled a series of secret notebooks with his own Marxist ideas. Among them, an explanation for Marx's failed prophecy of a coming proletarian uprising against the ruling classes. According to Gramsci, Marx had grossly underestimated the strength of Western society. In 1917, Russia, an armed insurrection had worked because the state and its primary institutional support, the Russian Orthodox Church, were weak and rotten. One swift kick had brought them tumbling down. In Gramsci's view, the West, chiefly Britain and America, were different. The diminutive Italian spoke in terms of hegemonies, that is, of power structures, where Marx divided the world into a single hegemony of haves and have-nots. Gramsci divided it into more hegemonies, families, education, government, morality, the church, law, and civil society as a whole. The frontal assault strategy would not work in the West, he said, at least not in the beginning, because these institutional pillars of Western society were much too strong. These must be undermined from within first, softening them up, and only then, when the Western colossus was sufficiently weakened, would the frontal assault work. Gramsci's strategy was, in effect, that of the Trojan horse. Socialism will triumph, he wrote, by first capturing the culture via infiltration of the schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. 
The Trojan horse approach is called cultural Marxism. Subvert families, traditional morality, and the touchstones of national identity and penetrate educational institutions, the church, and the legal system, and eventually that country will fall like a ripe fruit into the hands of Marxists. It wasn't until the 1950s that Gramsci's notebooks, which had been smuggled out of the prison, were published posthumously in Italian. It was another 20 years before they were published in English translation. By then, with multiple Marxist genocides and all, one might have thought that the evils of the system were so well established that no one in their right mind would ever again think of implementing them. But leftists are not ones to give up on a murderous, unworkable, failed utopian ideology simply because it is a murderous, unworkable, failed utopian ideology. And Gramsci's notebooks breathed new life into Marxist hopefuls. By the 1980s, Gramsci's ideas had achieved something of a cult status among a generation of Western academics. The degree to which Gramsci's infiltration tactics have worked needs little commentary from me. The left began occupying powerful positions in, if not outright control of, each of the aforementioned societal pillars. Marxists were sure that the much-anticipated revolution was near but it didn't happen. This brings us to our own time and two pernicious additions to this toxic Marxist cocktail, critical race theory and intersectionality. Whether you have ever heard of these terms or not, you have seen them at work in such seismic cultural events as the legalization of gay marriage, the Me Too movement, and the violence of Black Lives Matter that is being endorsed by the Democratic Party. Marx saw workers as oppressed people. Gramsci and a group of Marxist scholars in what was then called the Frankfurt School expanded the list of oppressed peoples to include many others. For example, traditional marriage and family are patriarchal institutions and are therefore instruments of oppression. The church with its message of peace and otherworldly bliss oppresses the masses by sapping them of their revolutionary spirit. Educational institutions oppress the lower classes by teaching them to love their countries and instilling them with patriotic fervor, thus protecting the ruling classes. And so the argument went with every other pillar of society. You must remember that the Trojan horse strategy, that is cultural Marxism, is to infiltrate these pillars and to destroy them from within convincing some in these institutions that they are actually suffering oppressed victims is an effective way to do it. In the 1980s, Kimberly Crenshaw, a legal scholar who coined the terms critical race theory and intersectionality, applied Gramsci's hegemony's model to race, arguing that black people are victims of white hegemony, white supremacy, or what is sometimes called white privilege. Are you black? You're oppressed, whether you know it or not. Are you white? You're an oppressor, whether you know it or not. Crenshaw argued that America is guilty of systemic racism. Sound familiar? Because she claimed racism is deeply ingrained in every aspect of society. A civil war to free the oppressed, constitutional amendments to protect them, affirmative action to jumpstart them, and a multitude of government programs to help them are not enough. Nothing will ever be enough. 
If a black man or woman fails to succeed in America, it cannot be the result of his or her own choices or limitations. It is always the fault of a racist system. And if you're white, you are part of a racist system and you must be made to pay for your sin, literally. Critical race theory is being used to pave the way for massive reparations for slavery because it overcomes, not logically, but emotionally, the chief hurdle facing those demanding such reparations, how to make white people of today co-conspirators in the crime of an institutional slavery that ended more than 150 years ago. As you might have guessed, intersectionality expands the definition of victims until it now includes anyone who isn't a straight, Christian conservative white male. At the intersection of society, she says, one finds that women are victims of men. Non-heterosexuals are victims of heteronormativity. Non-Christians are victims of Christian hegemony. Non-Americans are victims of Americans. And on and on it goes. The form taken by modern Marxism sees society in terms of victims and victimizers. It has often been said that Marxism can never work because it fails to understand human nature. There's much truth in this. That said, Marxists have proved to be astute, if cynical, observers of human nature to this extent. First, contrary to what is frequently alleged, Marxism, much more than capitalism, appeals to our greedy natures because it says that what is yours should be mine. Indeed, I have a right to take it by force if necessary. Second, Marxism appeals to our desire to tell other people what to do. Legalism is not a product of religion. It's a product of human nature. And Marxist societies, secular to their black-hearted core, are the very picture of legalism, making as they do a tyranny of community. Third, Marxists know that it isn't hard to convince a man that his own failures are the result of someone else's treachery. Hitler convinced an entire country. Now Black Lives Matter would do it to America. The evil in this cannot be overstated. It's the sort of warped logic that progresses from a soft persecution to pogroms and eventually to the gas chambers. Remember the game Jenga. Players remove wooden blocks from a tower until the integrity of the structure is compromised and it collapses. Every step in the ideological genealogy of Black Lives Matter is designed to remove those blocks that support government and society, religion, tradition, patriotism, education, and so on, until a tipping point is reached and a Marxist seizure of power is possible. It's a tried and true formula. Just look at history. Dozens of lesser towers have already fallen into total Marxist ruin. Albania, Angola, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Benin, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Cambodia, China, Congo, Croatia, Cuba, Czechoslovakia, Estonia, Ethiopia, East Germany, Hungary, Laos, Latvia, Macedonia, Moldova, Montenegro, Mozambique, North Korea, Poland, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Venezuela, and Vietnam. And this is just a list I made off the top of my head on a napkin. 
None of these are or were what one might call models of freedom, prosperity, and stability. And yet this is what the neo-Marxists would give us under the guise of social justice. But don't be naive. This isn't about social justice. It's a pretext for injustice. It's about the weaponizing of a fictional guilt for the seizure of assets and power. Revelation 6.8 says, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. With a body count of more than 125 million in the 20th century alone, one might reasonably wonder if this is a reference to Marxism. Whether it is or not, only time itself will tell. Regardless, history has demonstrated all too well that death and hell follow that murderous worldview wherever it goes. In conclusion, let me answer a question that I've been asked many times. Historically speaking, why has the United States proved so resistant to Marxism when so much of the rest of the world has fallen prey to it? The answer is simple, Christianity. America has the largest Christian population in the world, and Christians have generally recognized Marxism's inherent godlessness. For their own part, Marxists recognize that Christianity is the key Jenga block supporting the whole of American society. And America, in turn, is the key Jenga block supporting what remains of the free world. To quote T.S. Eliot, if Christianity goes, the whole culture goes. This is The Larry Alex Taunton Show. So welcome back. Larry, what is it that people need to know about Marxism? Um, you know, it's very interesting, Amy Beth. I feel very, very passionate on this issue. And I have, um, for quite some time, felt there are two issues that Americans, Westerners in general, uh, just don't really get. They don't understand. And you're, you're trying to equip them. You're trying to make them aware and the first of these is Islam, you know, the dangers of Islam. Before 9-11, I was warning people that this ideology is not friendly to Western values. They do not value freedom. They don't value women. Um, and I know that some people are out there who are going, listen, I have friends who are Muslims. They don't follow. Those friends of yours, they are fuzzy, westernized Muslims who don't take the Hadith they don't take the Quran. They don't take the life of Muhammad seriously. Those people we call radical Muslims aren't radical. They're orthodox Muslims. They take their scriptures very, very seriously, and they're supposed to model their life after Muhammad. Well, Westerners generally don't get this because they assume that other people value the same things that we do, and that's not true. Well, the second issue that I feel the, the same way about is Marxism. That Marxism is an issue that, that most Westerners just don't get. And it's because experientially they don't have anything to compare it to. They just don't. And an example that I might use is, um, say, prior to the Vietnam War, which is called the Living Room War, for a reason. And it's because you had, for the first time, you had um, reporters who were embedded with combat units and who are reporting live 
from the battlefield. You know, World War II, you had Ernie Piles and people like this who were out there, uh, you know, um, reporting on the war. But those were heavily, heavily censored, less so during the Vietnam War. So prior to Vietnam, when you have veterans who are coming back from the front line and they're describing, you know, trench warfare in World War One, or they're trying to describe the, you know, the 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 Battle of the Bulge in in uh, in or the Eastern Front in uh, World War Two, or you know, the horrors of uh, of Korea, the people at home don't have a frame of reference, so they can't really get it. Well. Marxism is like that. Most people don't have a frame of reference. So when you're talking about the kinds of things that Marxists do to subvert a culture, to take uh, take over a culture, people look at you like, you know, this is conspiracy theory. This is you need a tinfoil hat, you know, that this stuff isn't real and it is real. So I have um I have felt a heavy burden on this issue for Sometime I have on Islam because I've known so many people who have been persecuted um, by Muslims. I've known people who, ha- who have, you know, family members murdered, um, taken off into sex slavery, raped, uh, mutilated bodies, these kinds of things. So I have felt a passion for the persecuted church in, in, uh, in regards to, uh, uh, to radical Islam, and I felt it regarding, regarding Marxism. And... You know, I'm sitting in, I'm, I'm laying in bed recently and I'm, you know, I call them my hamsters. You know, they, they keep running on the wheel in my head and I'm thinking I, I want to go to sleep and my brain won't stop. And I'm feeling stress, you know, over this issue. I'm feeling great anxiety over this issue. And I was praying, Lord, I feel inadequate to the task. How do I prepare people on an issue like this when they're not really, they don't have a frame of reference. They're not ready to hear what you have to say. They almost have to experience the horrors of it before they're ready to hear you on it. And then it's too late. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? And, um, I, I felt like, and I, by the way, I'm not a real touchy feely Christian. I'm, you know, I'm fairly Presbyterian in my outlook, you know, the frozen (laughs) chosen as they, as they say, I am, hardly a, um, a charismatic. Um, so I'm, I don't fall into that category. And yet here I am laying in bed and I felt like the Lord was saying, let the saints equip you. Mm-hmm. Let the saints equip you. Larry, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and let the saints and the martyrs pre- prepare you on this because they've been there and they speak to you. They speak to you from beyond the grave and they they have addressed this before, and I, and I was feeling this way because I was thinking, you know, gosh, the people who could really warn us, they're mostly dead, you know, the people who, um, or you know, you don't get access to them. They're people in China and they're people in North Korea, and uh, having those conversations is very difficult, and particularly for me since uh, I'm now banned from from China. Although I was recently in Cuba, um, but the people are afraid to talk to you, at least many of them are, and those who do talk to you can't use their real names. It's not like I can bring them on a show like this because they risk arrest. So, you know, again, I'm thinking, how do you prepare people when the ones that could really prepare, who've really experienced the horrors of uh, of Soviet communism uh, are mostly dead? 
And again, you know, here's the Lord saying, the witnesses will prepare you. Um, the martyrs will prepare you. And that's led me to a guy named Richard Warmbrand. Now, I have made mention of him um, on social media uh, before. Uh, as many who are listening to us will know who he is because Warmbrand uh, was, uh, was a guy who, in the 1960s, he, uh, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. It became a bestseller. And uh, uh, Warmbrand was a, uh, he was Jewish. Uh, I don't know if he was, he was ever really a practicing Jew. He and his wife, he may have even been an atheist. I'm, I'm not sure. But he eventually became a Christian um, in um, the 1940s. As a Romanian, um, he suffered first the occupation of the Nazis, who, you know, during their invasion of the Soviet Union, they uh, also invaded his country. And so he suffered the occupation of the fascists, of the Nazis. And then when they were driven out, um, the occupation of the communists. So the Russians uh, then occupied the Soviets, the communists then occupied Romania. And he and his wife suffered that as well. And Warmbrand had become a Lutheran um, pastor. And uh, he was operating a number of illegal um, underground you know, churches. And uh, Warmbrand was arrested, I think, first in um, 1948. He was imprisoned from 1948 until 1956. And then again, um, during Khrushchev's um, purge, there was this. There was kind of this relaxing of the rules between uh, fifty six and fifty nine. And this, by the way, is is interesting because many of those who lived under the horrors of the Soviet Union, when there was a kind of general openness that occurred after the fall of the Soviet Union in nineteen ninety one, many of those people were reluctant to act on the op openness. And the reason is because they remembered what happened between fifty six and fifty nine where the um, the Soviets kind of released the rules. Right. And they did to see how many Christians and um, how much opposition to the regime there still was. So these people start coming out of hiding because they think, okay, yeah. right. it's open. Sure. They come out of hiding. The KGB starts making careful notes. Oh, okay, well, that guy's still there. Okay, well, that guy's still there. They start making their list. Oh, well, this, this church is in operation. That church is in operation. Then in 59, they cracked down again and started rounding all those people up. So Warmbrand, who was in prison from 48 to 56, he was tortured. He was beaten. He was kept underground, I think, for three years when he yeah. did not see the sun. Yes. Didn't see a flower. Didn't see the sky. Didn't see the moon. Didn't see a, didn't see a, a blade of grass. And he also says that he very seldom experienced any kind of human interaction because he was kept in solitary confinement and the guards wore felt um, sold boots so that you didn't even hear them walking up and down the corridors. This sensory depri deprivation was meant to drive you nuts because you didn't get a book, you didn't get a newspaper, you got nothing. So your mind just feeds on itself. And then he says they would play a record. They would, they would begin to torture a woman out in the um, the corridor, and you were sure it was your wife or daughter. 
And you would hear the screaming, the screaming that's going on out there. So, you know, he experienced this from 48 to 56. Then in 59, he was arrested again. And he was imprisoned from 59 until 64. And then in 1966, I think they were Norwegians. I think it was Norwegian Christians who bought him from the Soviets with hard currency. The, the Soviets, Marxist um, economics don't work. Right. And Marxist regimes are always in trouble and they want hard currency. So these uh, Norwegians, you know, put together, um, you know, a, a ransom of about $10,000. They ransomed him. He got out and they warned him that, um, that is, the Soviets did. They said, look, um, you know, we might keep some of your family members here. If you attack us in the West... If you say things we don't like, um, we can torture them. Um, we can kidnap you. We can pay a gangster to bump you off. They, they laid out all these threats against him. Well, he wouldn't be um, suppressed. He came to the West, and in 1966, Richard Wormbrand, that's W-U-R-M-B-R-A-N-D, Richard Wormbrand um, appeared before the United States Senate. And he gave testimony. And that testimony, we will, we will put that, we'll share that online. We'll put it, we'll put it um, on the website. I'll probably put it on social media. You can find it. Yeah. It's out there. Just type in Richard Wormbrand, U.S. Senate testimony, and you will find this um, at the Richard Wormbrand Foundation. Uh, you can find it there. There's also a, a Mormon site um, that carries it in full, the full text of what he has to say. But we're using Wormbrand today in this discussion because we've laid out what Marxism and socialism are um, in, that, in that short video. We explained what Marxism and socialism are and how you need to understand what that is. But today, we're trying to equip you for how Marxists work, what they do. And they're the things that we are now seeing in the West in a very big way. And Richard Wormbrand is a guy that we can look at who helps us understand what this looked like. Right. So what are, and I had, you know, you sent some paragraphs and, and different things that we both really were, were struck by his yeah. testimony. Um, you know, and I think one of the first is that part of what he says kind of midway through the testimony, and this is the, this is the headline here is, and they shut their eyes. Yeah. They shut their eyes. They wished not to see. Yeah. And that's what my hope is that people do not shut their eyes, but rather they listen so that they can become equipped. But I would like if after this break, we could go through some of the highlighted parts of his testimony yeah. that really stuck out to you that could help then equip the audience so that they would know this is what it is. This is what you need to listen for. And then this is what you can do. Perfect. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. The opinions expressed here do not reflect those of Democrats, atheists, Muslim radicals, environmentalists, globalists, socialists, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, soccer fans, or men who eat quiche but they should. Welcome back. So Larry, let's take apart some of the testimony um, from Wormbrand. 
because I think that the best way, as we know from history, is to learn from it mm-hmm. um, so that we don't repeat it. I know that's oft repeated. However, it's appropriate. It's valid. And I think his testimony is very important because the, the second time I read it through, and I will go back and read it a third time, um, just alarm bells were going off as I was going through. And as I let out from the, you know, to the last break, this idea of of shutting their eyes and they wished not to see seems to be where we are. Um, But what are other parts of the testimony that really stuck out to you that the audience would benefit from knowing? Yeah, I I want to urge people to read this. I, you know, I don't own it. I didn't write it. It's not. There's there's no. There's, right. We're we get, right. we're not beneficiaries of this. This is for free. It's online. It's in PDF form. Again, you just type in Richard Wormbrand, W U R M B R A N D, Senate um, testimony, 1966. And so this was him coming to the West for the first time. And um, he had been threatened to say nothing, but he stood before um, uh, the, the the Senate. And you have um, last night. I read through it with my boys, my adult boys, and I had assigned each one of them a part. So you have Senator Thomas Dodd, who is presiding, and then you have um, I've suddenly I've forgotten his name, Sourwine. Mm-hmm. I, I've forgotten his first name, but he's the uh, the chief counsel. And then um, you have Wormbrand um, himself. And they're asking him questions, you know. So tell us, tell us what the the uh, the communists did to you. What kind of torture techniques did they use? Did they brainwash you? Um, are they trying to subvert the church? Uh, what tactics are they employing there? And Wormbrand came before them, and uh, he tells his story. And we put emphasis on it in this show today because not because it's the only thing you can read right. about Marxism. There are tons of books that I could just off the top of my head point you to, but I know that most people are going to be intimidated to go and pick up, you know, a book by um, you know Richard Pipes, who is by the way a uh, premier, uh, a Russian historian. He was an advisor to Reagan. He was uh, um, a, a Harvard historian, remarkably a conservative, and anything by Richard Pipes I would uh, would strongly recommend. But short of that, I would just say go and read this. You know, I think it's 28 pages of... The document itself is, I think, 48 pages long. But I think, you know, the last 20 pages or so are just appendices. So I think it's 28 pages of his actual testimony. And it's riveting because it there's no... There's no... um, fat on this bone. It's, uh, it's, it's just recorded as minutes. Senator Dodd says, um, Wormbrand says reply by Wormbrand and Wormbrand is telling, he's offering a warning and that warning is now, you know, 56 years old and it is still as relevant today as it was then. He was saying Marxism is coming to the West. They're already subverting the West. And these are the tactics they use. And I just loved what he had to say about, he said he arrived in, I think it's in Philadelphia. He said, I saw a Vietnam War protest. And he said, I see a pastor, a pastor who is speaking to the crowd and is telling this, this crowd of protesters that um, communism, you know, look, it, it's not all bad. There are some things that are, that are consistent with the Christian faith that are okay. And Wormbrand, you know, you picture a man who's listening to this and he's full of rage 
as he's listening to this. And he says, and when that man came out of, came out from, of the, uh, from behind the podium, I went. Now you get the impression he was not invited to this. He just happened to see it. Right. And he said, and I went up on the podium and he said, and I started taking my shirt off and I took my shirt completely off. And you can find this online because there were newspaper reporters who were there who started snapping pictures. And he says, let me show you what the communists did to me. And he starts enumerating all of his scars. And he's saying, they did this to me. They tortured me here. They tortured me here. They broke these bones. They broke those bones. And he said, he then started saying to that pastor that this pastor, how can you offer support to people who persecute the saints, who murder fellow Christians? How can you do this? And he said that the crowd, suddenly, they'd gone from Vietnam War protest to calling this pastor a Judas. And um, Wormbrand said that, says to the Senate, he says, these are Judases. These are Judases. And this, by the way, Amy Beth, to beat a horse that I have beaten again and again, and I'm just going to keep beating it. This is what I don't like about the David Frenches, what I don't like about the Tim Kellers, what I don't like about the Russell Moores, what I don't like about the Beth Moores. And that is this. Let me, let me read to you what, what Wormbrand said in his testimony. This is just part of what he said. He said, you're, um, uh, let's see, in Romania, you're allowed to say as much as you like mm. that God is good. Mm. You're allowed to say, but you aren't allowed to say that the devil is bad. St. John the Baptist could have saved his life if he had said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Mm. Nobody would have touched him. He was touched when he said, you, Herod, are bad. If Christ would have delivered a thousand sermons on the mount, they would never have crucified him. They crucified him when he said, you vipers. Then they crucified him. In Romania, you can say God is good, but you can't say communism is cruel. They commit atrocities. It is a crime to poison children with atheism. And by the way, our children are being poisoned with this crap. Yes. Um, he says, you're not allowed to say that. If you do this, you will go to prison. There are many priests, rabbis, and pastors who compromise and don't put the dot on the I. Mm. I love the way he, mm. he, he puts that. They don't put the dot on the I. And we are talking about, there are people who will say to me, well, you know, so-and-so has planted all kinds of churches. He's written all kinds of Christian books. I don't care. I don't care. If you are not putting the dot on the I... Amen. If you are not putting the dot on the eye and calling out the evil for what it is, and you're acting like Marxism, socialism has some resonance in with the Christian faith, which by the way, which by the way, Tim Keller has done, yes. and he has done it repeatedly. In so doing, you are a Judas to the faith. Because as Wormbrand is pointing out here, and I feel so passionate about this because we have, it's like saying that, that Islam is, is, is a religion of peace. It is a betrayal to all those Christians who have been raped, mutilated, murdered, slaughtered by this religion. It is a failure to support them. And Wormbrand says, if you are dining with these people, if you are supporting them, if you are giving aid to them, if you're failing to condemn them when they are crushing the saints un under the, the treads of their tanks 
They are torturing them. They are doing awful, evil things. And by the way, they are. Right. In China, in North Korea, they've done it in Russia. They did it all over Eastern Europe. And Wormbrand points out extensively that he's sick of hearing people say, well, our communism, our socialism will look different. Right. And we've heard that in the U.S. We've heard that, that it's, it's better, it's improved. Really? And so now we've included it in school curriculum. Oh, or it'll you've be different. seen it's different. It's better. We're so evolved. We understand this more. Or, or I've seen podcasts of, you know, churchgoers saying, well, we can be kind and let's see where we can include these Marxist ideologies. And and let's let's be winsome. Hey, yes, there's that word again there we go. about this so that we can include it. When if you know what it is. And you know where it comes from. It's horrific, and we should have nothing to do with it. Yes. Um, he is. He indicates, I was trying to find it here on the page as you were speaking, but he talks about how when they came to Romania, the communists came to Romania, that their president you know, stood before um, you know, a gathering of churches, and they said, our communism, he said, our communism will not look like Russian communism. We love the church. We will pay the priests. We will support them. And he said, and priests, one right after the other, got up and started applauding him. And they said, we don't really have a problem with um, communism. If your communism will be different from, from Russian communism. First of all, Marxism, which is what communism is, uh, Marxism is antithetical to the gospel, it, to its core. It is. I don't. I don't care that that they claim to care about the poor and all these kinds of things. I promise you that that it is in its black-hearted core. It is opposed to the gospel. And the way I put it in the Grace Effect is this: If I can remember my own writing, it is. Uh, it is this that in the in the socialist model, um, the state, an eternal institution, is served by man a temporal being. In the Christian model, it's reversed. The state, a temporal institution, serves man an eternal being. I hope I said that right. Yes. So um, there's a huge difference because you see Marxists see human beings as raw material for the just, just brick and mortar for the building of the utopian state. This World Economic Forum group that we're dealing with increasingly, and I know this will sound to some people like this is all conspiracy theory and so forth. I promise you it isn't. And we will get to the World Economic Forum in a future you know, um, podcast, Klaus Schwab and, and, uh, and these types. But they wield an awful lot of power, and there are a lot of people in the West um, who are buying into this. And they are utopians, and so as, as utopians, they are ideologues. And ideologues, by definition, they are individuals who are absolutely married to, dedicated to their cause, whatever their cause is. And thus, human beings are subjugated to the ideas. They matter less than the ideas. This was one of the things I liked about Christopher Hitchens, because Christopher Hitchens had perceived that the atheism of a Richard Dawkins was um, was deeply ideological in nature. Richard Dawkins is an ideologue. Christopher Hitchens wasn't. Christopher Hitchens, you know, found himself feeling fairly uncomfortable 
with where that train was headed. He thought human beings mattered more than the idea itself, hence the inconsistency uh, in his own um, thought. Well, Marxists are, are, are ideologues to their core, and they see human beings as mattering less than the ideas. And it's for that reason that that Lady Astor, you know, who was visiting Stalin in, gosh, I don't remember what year, but in the 1930s, she was in, she was in Moscow, and she asked him, when are you going to stop killing people? Without any hint of irony, Stalin said, when it's no longer necessary. Meaning, guys like Stalin and Mao and Hitler, and now we're talking about fascists when we talk about Hitler, um, these are individuals who saw the annihilation of millions of people as a moral good. As a moral good. It's what we're seeing from the Biden administration. Yes. It's ideologically driven. They don't care that your gas prices are skyrocketing. They are doing it deliberately because they're trying to force you into um, using electric cars. And so the idea is, if I remove one option from the table, you will have to take the other. This is where we're going. So Wormbrand was, he was warning about all of this. He was saying, this is how these people operate. This is what they do. And when the priests stood up and were clapping, as the president of Romania was saying, well, our communism will be different. He said there was one man who opposed them, who was there, who said, no, I do not go along. And it was Richard Warmbrand himself. So he's saying, this is what's happening in the West. And you people are falling for the propaganda because you are listening to Marxists who are telling you American socialism will be different. We support the church. He says, I've even seen in the West Marxists who cross themselves. Yes. <laughs> He says they're suckering you. They're trying to they're trying to to make you think they're one of you. But these people are liars. Marxists Marxists are are, are Machiavellian to their core. And I'm I'm referring to you know uh, Machiavelli who wrote the Beast, um, and excuse me the Prince, in which he says the Prince must possess the nature of both man and beast. I I confused the quotation with the title of the book, but um, Machiavelli is famous for the line, ends justify means. Mm. And so Marxists are of that view. They believe that if, if lying to you, this is what you're seeing in the culture with media and censorship and things of these nature, uh, of this nature, you know, if there, there might be leftists who say to themselves, you know, censorship isn't a nice thing to do. It isn't a nice thing to make gas prices go up. It isn't a nice thing to shut people down but it's necessary right. to achieve our goals. This is the way they think. You know, we haven't talked about this in a little bit, and and I, you didn't know I was going to do this, but could we pause? Because I think what's very impressive about what you're saying, not only is your historical understanding, but what is your background? What I know what your degree is in. I know where you've been, but could you give people a refresher for those who say, oh, he's, he's just very exercised about this. I assure you he is not, because if you're paying attention, you know these things to be true. But in this area, your expertise stands out. Um, I, I will shrink from saying I'm an expert for this reason. 
Um, I don't know if there are any real experts when it comes to this stuff. And it's, it's simply because it morphs and it's changing yeah. constantly. Marxism, Marxism, Marxism is demonic. I mean, Richard Wormbrand, you can also find this online, um, a PDF, which you can download, or you can find the book somewhere that you can order it. He wrote a little book called Marx and Satan. Yes. Marx and Satan. And uh, that little book is powerful because Wormbrand is talking about, Wormbrand wasn't an academic. He, would, he wouldn't be a guy who probably could, could have real lengthy conversations of an academic nature with Richard Pipes, the aforementioned mm -hmm. Harvard historian, on uh, Marxism. But, but Richard Wormbrand experienced it you know, at, at the butt end of a rifle. You mm -hmm. know, he, he experienced it at its worst. He saw what it is. And as a pastor, he could readily perceive. I mean, for instance, he's talking about in the prisons that um, during the Senate hearing, he says they, they deliberately desecrate the Christian faith. He says, so they tie a priest to a cross and twice a day, they lower that cross on the ground and they require a hundred prisoners to come and defecate on him and urinate on him, or they beat and torture them. And then they would raise him up and tell us, worship your Christ. Doesn't he smell good? Doesn't he look good? Worship your Christ. He said, then they took a priest and um, they made him serve all the other prisoners, um, Holy Communion with urine and feces. And he said, and if you vomited it up, they made you lick it up off of, off of the ground. You may say, I would never do that. Wormbrand said, you absolutely would because they will torture you and they know how. They know how to do it. So coming back to your question about my experience, um, I, uh, I studied Russian history as an undergrad. <clears throat> I studied, uh, I got my master's in uh, European history, Russian history, um, and the study of Russian history requires um, the study of Marxism. I mean, you just simply can't get through it. I bet probably a third. It's funny, I, I think I might have said this in an article or possibly tweeted that maybe a third of my professors were Marxists. And a buddy of mine who he was working on his PhD while I was working on mine texted me and said, oh, I'd say two thirds. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I, I think two thirds um, were Marxists. And... Um, Interestingly enough, Amy Beth, I, I think I said this in the in fact I did say this in the video that yeah. we just showed, you know, that when I was when I was working on uh on my degrees, um, people are telling me this is a waste of time. Marxism is dead. You know, it's on what what people call the 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 ash heap or the trash heap of history. Right, right. Um, because I was, you know, I was starting graduate school just as the Soviet Union had collapsed, and I was thinking, well, there are a billion people on the other side of the planet who still you know, still believe it works. And I was referring, of course, to the Chinese. Now we're seeing it infiltrate the West. I'll also say that um, my, um, I won't say expertise, but my, uh, uh, how do we want to say it? My experience with this um, extends uh, perhaps most potently and powerfully to um, being in communist countries. Yes. So I've seen how they work. And not only have I studied, you know, their, their tactics, their ideology, but I've had the, I don't know if you want to call it the pleasure, but I've, I've had, 
I've had the opportunity to see how they work at close range. You know, I was just in Cuba, and let me just use this little story as an example, and I want to be careful here. There are many stories that I could tell that I don't because it puts people at risk. You have to be very, very careful um, because I listen to stories you know, of, of people who've been persecuted, be it in, in Nigeria or uh, Morocco or Egypt at the hands of, um, of Muslims. And I have to tell their stories in very anonymously. I have to anonymize them in a, in a big way, lest I endanger them. Well, it's the same is true when it comes to, um, when it comes to, uh, to, to Marxism, because the authorities can track where I was. You, you understand. Yes. So they can, um, you know, the hotel where I was or anything like that, that's all readily available information to them. So here I am, in, uh, and I'm going to, this story is much better than I'm going to tell it because I can't tell the real story. But I can give you bits and pieces of it. When I was in Cuba recently, and I mean maybe two months ago, three months ago, Cuba, of course, is a communist country. Uh, it is a hellhole of a country. I mean, they have, they have, they do what Marxists do everywhere. They have the opposite of the Midas touch. They turn everything to crap. Yes. Whatever they touch, Marxists do is the touch of death. That's what it is. So to the so people are living in abject poverty, all while the state is declaring we have you know achieved perfect socialism, right. and people would have to go and sit. And listen to the harangues of um, um, Castro, you know, for speeches that would last eight to twelve hours, while people are having to stand there and pretend that they like it. Yes, yes, yes. Oh gosh, I want to go home. I want to leave. Yeah. I mean, you think the sermon that you sit and listen to, you know, for for thirty, forty five minutes, uh, I can can get tough. Imagine listening to somebody drone on for eight to twelve hours, no. and this. Castro did regularly, and and and, and they're making note of who's there. You know, did you show up? Are you showing your loyalty to the state? And of course, they have signage all over the place, as in every communist country uh, does. You know, talking about how wonderful socialism is, and all of the previous heroes who are in fact mass murderers. It's like having a putting a portrait. You know, having Che Guevara. You know, on the walls of um, of buildings, on the sides of buildings. It's like putting. It's like putting the image of a man. It is like putting the image of a man who raped a whole country. And kids are learning about this in school. I've been in schools around the country where I have seen the lessons. Yes. Praising Guevara. I've seen it. Oh, and there's movies now. There's uh, there's the Motorcycle Diaries, which I watched on a plane. Um, yeah, interesting. Che Guevara was a mass murderer. I bought for my boys a shirt that had, you know, Che on it. Yes. You know, the famous Che shirt, and it says douchebag, you know, down at the bottom. I need one of those. I, uh, I want people to know that this 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 man is is a greater mass murderer than any AR-15 uh, um, shooting you care to name. This is, and yet he's being celebrated. This is what Marxists do, and they're right. pushing him right. here. Yeah. They're pushing him here as though he were a hero. Marxists make hell holes of every country, and that's why they know that when they 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 out themselves, Black Lives Matter, for instance, they had on their website initially that they were Marxists. You can find them saying we are trained Marxists. Well, they removed that from their website because there's still people like me and you, a generation who was taught about the wickedness of this ideology, and they thought. 
ooh, maybe this isn't the best salesmanship. Maybe this isn't the best way to sell our ideology. So they took that down. And when people call them out on it, they, of course, say, well, but we're going to do it different, like in Venezuela. Right, because that's what they do. Trust them. That's right. Yes. Um, like Venezuela, um, where you know the average Venezuelan, I think, has lost 40 pounds in the last year. Like in uh, um, uh, Vietnam, like in China, like in Russia, like in North Korea. It never works anywhere. This is an evil ideology. It is demonic. And people need to understand that. So Richard Wormbrand, when he, when he appeared before the Senate... He took his shirt off before the Senate because uh, Thomas Dodd, Senator Thomas Dodd said, do you mind taking your shirt off here and showing us your scars? And Warren Brand, um, he seems to have been a very sweet man. He says, I do apologize to the ladies he did. who are present. And he says, there's much I would say, but for the presence of, 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 of ladies here that I just simply can't say because you'd run from the room if I were to tell you everything that the communists did. But he took his shirt off. And Thomas Dodd starts asking him, he says, what's that one on your, you know, on your breast? What's, what's that one? What's the one behind your ear? And Warren Brand starts enumerating them, starts saying, this is from a knife, this is from a hot iron, this is from, and he said, did, did they use, you know, what did they use on you? He says, they use everything on you. They use everything on you. So I have sat and listened to these kinds of stories. I never got around to saying what I was going to say about Cuba. When I was in Cuba, I'm summoned by the police. So... Um, this was not an unpleasant encounter with the police. I've done this before in communist countries. I've been called more than once. There's a reason why I have been banned um, from China. Um, and so I you know, receive a notice that says I must appear. Now, um, uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll put that up for you on the screen, but I'll need to redact you know, strong elements um, of that. Now, they don't care if I have a flight the next day. It says, tomorrow at 9 a.m., you must show up at the police station. They don't care if I have a flight the next day. They don't care if I have a tour the next day. They don't care if I have a lecture the next day. It doesn't matter. You must show up. And this is what communist totalitarian regimes look like. You, when you're summoned, you must go. We, we don't have that here. So Americans, this is an example of what I'm talking about, where Americans can't identify with this. They don't know what you're talking about. Mm. So if, if you don't receive a summons from the police here that tells you you must show up at the station or else, we would say, you can talk to my lawyer. Do you have a search warrant for that? Do you, do you, have, do you have an arrest warrant? If you don't, then um, bugger off. You don't, you don't right. have the right to tell me that. That's not true in a, a totalitarian regime, which all Marxist regimes are, all while declaring they're, they're doing it for the people. So I appear before the police, and this is the way it usually goes. You're, the first police that you're dealing with, they're typically young, and they're, they're kind of giddy to be engaging in American. So they're usually fairly friendly, because in, almost to the point of wanting a selfie with you, because they're not used to seeing Americans, and it's kind of an exciting moment for them. So they start asking you questions, and you want to, anybody, if you ever find yourself in these circumstances, give, first of all, they're probably not going to ask you questions they don't know the answers to. So okay. don't lie. Second thing is don't give them information they don't have. So the interview goes like this. Why are you in the country to tour? What have you toured? Havana. What did you see in Havana? The sites. What sites? Mm. The major sites. 
Uh, do you like it? Yes. You better not say no to that question. Okay. It's good to know. Don't say the no to that The next time I'm question. in Cuba. Um, that question I've been asked many times in, in these countries, and it'll be repeated. If you say no, first time I was, I was asked in this, these circumstances, do you like X country? Uh, not particularly. Do you like this country? <laughs> no, I, I don't. Do you like this country? Well, there are things. Do you like this country? Yes, you may proceed. You know, that's the way it goes. Right. So you're not answering the questions. Um, I wasn't dishonest, but I'm not giving them anything they don't already know. Um, what is your purpose here to tour? So they might circle back to something like that. Um, do you like the food? Yes. What do you like about the food? Oh, it tastes good. What do you like about the culture? The food. Um, what else do you like about the culture? Mm, music. Um, you know, so you're just giving one word responses to the, to the, to the best of your ability and then hope they're bored to death. They send you on. And you have to understand these days, there was a time when traveling, we were backed by a government that cared about us. I mean, even the Clinton you know, administration, where that if you were an American who were, you know, you were Brittany Griner, you know, for yes. instance, the, uh, the woman who was in Russia uh, right now being held by the Russians on drug charges, you had at least a little bit more hope. It doesn't mean that it always worked out. I mean, we have the case of, I don't know how you say his last name, um, Otto Warmbier. Is yes. that how you say yes. his name? Yeah. Um, the guy who was beaten to death, you know, um, by the North Koreans after stealing a, a poster but this is the way these regimes operate. And used to, uh, you had the confidence that they they were at least a little reluctant to mistreat you because the power of the U.S. government took missing Americans seriously. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, we, we just don't let our people just get be treated willy-nilly all over the world. These days, the Biden administration will sell you downriver. Yes. So I, I'm a little more anxious uh, going abroad because, I mean, I, listen— I go, I'm, I'm abroad all the time, but by that I don't mean a woman. I, I mean, I travel and all. It's just a joke. Right. It was just right. a joke. But I'm aware that this is an administration who's going to bargain for me. Yes. So uh, this is what this looks like. It's what a totalitarian regime looks like. And Americans, they don't get this. They don't understand this. So I. that's why we keep pushing you to read Richard Warmbrand's testimony is 28 pages, even if you only read 10 pages of it, you will have a better idea and a light will go on because you'll begin to say, see, oh, wow, the stuff that he is predicting here is what is happening right. in the culture. Right. It certainly is. So I have a few more questions for you um, after the break, and, and then we will uh, head into <coughs> our final segment, but stay tuned. We will be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. So maybe you're listening and you think, all right, I, I need to, maybe I'm beginning to see this a little bit more clearly, but what are the tactics? I know Wormbrand talks a lot about that, but what are some of them that we can learn from? Let me put a little levity in here. Okay. You know, sitting here as we do, we are looking at a monitor of ourselves and I am reminded of the Bear Bryant show way back when I was a little kid that was that was you had to watch the Bear Bryant show on Sunday afternoons after an Alabama football game. And then it continued with successive coaches and they sat fairly similar to the way we're sitting, except they would have a um, product placement of a Coca-Cola 
but they were always paper cups. They were paper cups and a bag of golden flake chips on the table. And they would always say, they would break it open and they would pour a little bit and they'd say, mmm, it's so good. And they would eat it during a drink during the show. So I don't know if Golden Flake wants to support our show. It'd be great. You're, you're welcome to become a sponsor of this show. We would be glad to have you as a sponsor. Um, the the Tactics of Marxists brought to you by Golden Flake. You know, I'd love to be able to say that. Or My Pillow. You know, the My Pillow guy. We're I feel left out. Yeah. Why has it Sir, I believe that you need to <laughs> I need you to sponsor this because it's been pulled from Mike Walmart Lindell. shelves. Mike Lindell, please. I, I think that a, a My Pillow sponsorship would be great. Just use code Amy Beth. Or free pillows. And get nothing. It's zero. It gets you nothing. You can use that code. It will get you zero. But, you know. So, you know, it feels like every conservative podcast has, uh, you know, has my pillow out there. But anyway, back to the topic of the moment, (laughs) the the tactics of Marxists. Um, These can be found um, a lot of places. Some people who are listening to us today will recall a talk I gave a couple of years ago called Understanding What's Happening in America, in which I talked about Marxist tactics. You can find this on our website, Understanding What's Happening in America. Uh, Shortly after I gave that talk, Eric Metaxas called me and said, Larry, Larry, you got to turn this into an article. So I did. Uh, So you can find both the article and the talk itself um, uh, on LarryAlexTaunton.com. And uh, there I focused on um, a book by Saul Alinsky, who was an American Marxist who wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. And in it, he lays out a number of Marxist tactics. But today we're talking about Richard Wormbrand and what Wormbrand says um, the, the tactics are. And he's not offering them, again, when he's talking to the Senate... He's not offering them in, a, in an af- academic orderly sense. He's talking as we are right here today. He's just speaking in a very extemporized manner before the Senate, showing his scars on his body and this kind of stuff. But some of the things that he mentions, first of all, he says that terror is essential to communism. And when you hear me say communism, I mean Marxism. I mean socialism. They're all, you know... Uh, you know, as we explained earlier in the show, they are all, uh, you know, uh, derivative uh, right. of, of, of the same, you know, ideology. So uh, he says that terror is absolutely essential. He also says that the way they, they, they take power is they gain control of, of society's, you know, um, uh, primary institutions. And they do this either by infiltrating them with their own people or they gain control of, of leadership by um, either bribing them or perhaps by finding something on them. So you are, uh, let's say, the, you know, the head of the Council of Churches in America and the way we get control of you is we, you know, we, we find some dirt on you and we, we threaten to blackmail you. We're going to publish this information. We're going we're gonna to make people aware uh, of, of this. So he says that they, uh, they coerce leaders to join them with blackmail, um, or as I say, they might bribe them. And if this fails, they just smear them. So in Wormbrand's case, he says before he came to the United States, he says, um, they said, look, um, we can destroy you either by killing you or we'll say that, you know, you're a child molester or that you are whatever. And he says, and there will be people in the West who will believe this. They will believe it. And we know this is true. Do not fall for every 
every dirty rumor that you hear um, about conservatives because the the media will pick these up and they will run with them, true or not. Um, they will use them as a stick to beat those people with because they a they don't they they want to destroy their credibility with you, and they want to destroy those people in general. So these are real things that that we've seen done and. And, and I would add to this, don't allow Marxists to ever assume the high ground. Do not yes. let them lecture you on morality, mm. ever. They have none. They have no basis for morality. These are, these are soulless individuals mm. you know, who push this nonsense, but they will smear um, individuals. And then, of course, um, Wormbrand says, as we said earlier in the show, that there are Judases in the church. And this is one of the things he says to the... Um, um, to the Senate, as he's as he's Senator Dodd says to him, would you turn around before you put your shirt on? Meaning, show the audience the scars on your body. And Warmbrand says, and then it may be very clear: it is not that I boast with these marks, that is, with these scars. I show to you the tortured body of my country, of my fatherland, of my church, and they appeal to the American Christians and to all freemen of America to think about our tortured body. And we do not ask you to help us. We ask you only one thing. Do not help our oppressors and do not praise them. You cannot be a Christian and praise the inquisitors of Christians. That is what I have to say. So coming back to something I said earlier in the show, this is a primary problem that I have with some of the Christian leaders that we we are currently seeing um, who who call themselves evangelicals, who call themselves conservative evangelicals, and yet are unwilling to condemn socialism for what it is. They do not come out in unambiguous terms and say, this ideology is evil and must be condemned. They don't. And in some cases, they've yet to even come out and celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Correct. These, are the, these people are Judases. And you can write to me. You can send me all the nasty emails you want. You can tell me that these people are better than me. They may be more moral than I am. They might be better people in that sense. As Wormbrand himself says, I don't know anything about their actual deeds um, or their, um, you know, their, their hearts in these matters. But I will tell you that some of history's worst criminals were individuals who were very chaste, who were very upright in their behavior. Uh, Robespierre, for instance, who mm -hmm. sat on the, the... If ever there was a misnomer in history, this is one of them, <laughs> the Committee for Public Safety, who's, he, who reigned over the reign of terror itself, who sent loads of people uh, to the guillotine without any hesitation whatsoever. Robespierre, like many of the early Bolsheviks, was a, a man of uh, a tremendous self-discipline, very chaste, very orderly in his own personal conduct. He was a mass murderer. So individuals who give any kind of succor, any kind of relief, who fail to come out and to condemn this stuff for what it is, they are not your friend. They are not your friend, and they're not friends of Christ. That uh, you are correct, and I'm wondering what you think is the least... Have I not made clear what I think? <laughs> so we're talking about these people, listeners, maybe for the first time are, are really struggling with, I know that what you are saying is true. Yes. I'm struggling because I've listened to 
a Russell Moore or a Beth Moore. I've done their Bible studies. I've, I follow them. And yet, what do you think is the most, I don't even know what the word would be. What do you think the reasoning behind their trying to sidle up and make friends or at least not condemn socialism or Marxism? Do you have any thoughts on what their reasoning might be? Well, let me start by saying this. For those of you who want to send me those nasty notes um, or, uh, or take me on on this issue, know that I'm coming from the field where I've listened to the people who have suffered mm-hmm. under these kinds of regimes. When I'm sitting and talking to a crowd, for instance, to use the uh, Islam as an example, and I'm listening to some idiot in the crowd tell me that what I'm saying isn't true, that when I'm calling out Islam as a religion of violence, it is, it is inherently violent. If you are a good Muslim, you must be violent. You must kill uh, um, infidels, that is non-Muslims, or force them to pay a tax um, or force them to convert. Those are your three options. That's why when we want to say that suicide bombers, uh, Islamic suicide bombers, that they're crazy, they're not crazy. They're perfectly rational within that worldview. It makes sense. If I believed that my my path of salvation and that for my family might be secured by dying a martyr's death, that becomes a reasonable option for me. I begin to think about that. And, and, and so when I, I speak to people on that subject, having witnessed the wickedness of this religion, I can't come for your burning house in Africa where um, your family has been slaughtered by Muslim extremists and then go and tolerate somebody trying to tell me that this religion is a religion of peace. I feel like I must be a voice for you. If I'm your friend, I cannot tolerate that. I must call it out for what it is. Well, similarly, I have sat and listened to the stories, and of course I've witnessed and experienced it at, at a very, very minor level, what Marxist regimes do. I I'm aware of this. And when I leave those people, I'm full of rage. And this makes Christians uncomfortable. It does because they think, well, that's not a Christian attitude. Ephesians tells us being angry and do not sin. There's a place for righteous anger. And if you're not angered by the sexualization of children, uh, you know, Richard Wormbrand says they will, you can, you can say God is good all you want, but the moment that you say that you are, it is evil to pollute the minds of children with atheism, they will arrest you. That is what's being done in our country. The ch- our children are being, our grandchildren um, are being, their minds are being polluted with atheism, which is soul destroying. Hmm. It is the worst thing that can be done to them. And yet our government is doing it. Um, we have people in our public schools who are doing it. We have people in uh, our, um, you know, places like Disney, for heaven's sake, right. who think this is okay. Right. In our entertainment industries, who are doing these things and they think they're okay. This is evil. It must be called out as evil, and you must feel anger over this, or you're not a friend of Christ. I'm not telling you to go out and injure anybody. I'm telling you, be angry and oppose this because it should upset you in your core that this is what's being done and that your God is being blasphemed. Mm-hmm. You know, would you let anybody speak like that about your wife? Um, or, or do you, you just think it's okay? So again, you ask me what's in the hearts of people like this who are not saying anything about it. 
I don't know what is in their hearts. I don't know if they just want to go along and um, they lick their finger and they put it in the wind and they 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 choose to go along with the uh, with whichever way the the cultural political winds um, are blowing because it's an easier path. I don't know if it's because they're trying to make friends on that side. I've said elsewhere, you know, that I think it's Luke 16 that Jesus tells the parable of the shrewd manager. And uh, it's a powerful story. But in telling that story, he ends by saying that, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says basically Christians are much more naive. And then he says the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation. He says that, you know, unbelievers are much more are much more shrewd um, in how they they gain acceptance, you know, into uh, in in into the uh, the households of those people who might provide for them. It seems to me that maybe there's a little of this going on. Maybe that they're they're trying to gain favor um, with the uh, with the the cultural elitists. Uh, I I don't know. What I do know is this. There will be people who will stand before... The people who want to say to me, these are people who have done great things for the faith. Well, what I know is that Jesus himself says there will be people who on Judgment Day will say to me, but did we not? And they will list all the great mm-hmm. things they did. Yes. Cast out demons and, and, and do all these things in your name. And he said, and I will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. I don't care how many churches you planted. If you planted them with pastors who are preaching the crap you're planting, they're not good churches. I don't care what the number of them is. So um, for us to remain silent while not just abroad, the kinds of things he's talking about that Marxists have done and continue to do to the Richard Warmbrands of the world. In China today, Christians are being oppressed in ways you can scarcely imagine. But now it's being done here. Right. It is being done here, and it's being done to our children. Um, one of the people that I listen to, is called. his name is James Lindsay. His podcast is called The New Discourses, and he's breaking it down so that parents understand what's happening to their children in schools, like beginning in K-5, talking about class awareness, um, talking about dehumanizing. So you go from being aware that, hey, there's a different class to don't you know, you're the victim here. And so you begin to see this ebb and flow of what they're doing to get into the minds of little children and to us as adults in the country, um, you know, telling people that they have a special role, that there's class consciousness, and then moving into critical consciousness. And so ultimately you end up with Marxists by the time they graduate from high school, and then they're they're, um, useful for the state. And they'll do whatever the state says. And that's what is terrifying to me about what's happening in the schools because we see it, we understand it, but it's happening all around us. And you think, oh gosh, this is, you know, just in the school. But as you've said, and as we've seen, it's in the church. Yes. And and, and instead we say, no, wake up, wake up, wake up. This is and force not them. okay. Force them. Force your, if you wonder whether or not your pastor or others are trustworthy on these issues. I mean, obviously, be Bereans and pay attention to what they're preaching. Right. But ask them straight out, do they condemn Marxism for what it is? And if you see waffling on that issue, you've got a problem. 
And I think there's something else, and we've talked about this today. There are resources that you're probably listening, thinking, I want to know more about this. And so I want to reiterate one of the books that you brought up, Rules for Radicals. It is a very short book. It is indeed dedicated to Satan. That's not hyperbole. Get it for yourself. Get it while you can. Um, By the Communist Manifesto, it is also very short. Um, Then, if you want to, please read the testimony. Read Wormbrand's testimony for yourself. Print it out. Put it on your table, go through it, highlight it, understand it, share it with people. But then another thing that I'm reminded of is Bonhoeffer and Eric Metaxas's book. Yep, very um, good. It is a long read. It is a worthy read uh, to really you help can fill understand. A with that thing. I mean, it, it's like if you know you need to throw at somebody, do it. But it is thick. It is real. Uh, it's one of the best books I've ever read, notwithstanding these books right here. Um, But those are resources that I highly recommend to get a real understanding, because if we are in Christ, the Bible tells us in Thessalonians, because we have such a great hope, we are very bold. And that's how we face this, is understanding the root is our faith, and that is our foundation, and that is why we can look at this and say, this is wrong, not because we say it's wrong, but because it is completely what you said in the beginning, antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why it is worth this fight to tell the truth, and to wake people up as much as you know how. Amen. So right after this break, we will talk about, we'll we'll head to one more segment, Grace Where You Find It, and we need it. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back. So Larry, Grace Where You Find It. Yes. Well, you know, this is a fun little, little segment that we'll do from time to time, and Today is a day when we need it because this has been a heavier, heavier show. But, you know, the, the idea behind um, Grace Where We Find It is uh, just looking at places in the culture, in our own lives where we find grace. And by that, I don't necessarily mean biblical grace, that is to say saving grace, but just kindnesses, just, just uh, you know, something that's uplifting where we see grace exhibited in one form um, or another, and and uh, Lori and I, we, you know, we we were you know recently you know unpacking a lot of boxes and such, and I came across this little box right here. Um, this is my uh, little box that I've had for a little while now, and when I was, I make it look like it's speaking, but when <laughs> I was, um, <laughs> when I started many many years ago, when I started first started teaching. I uh, had a very interesting experience. A uh, a young lady was choking. She was, uh, I mean, like seriously choking. And I was sitting with other faculty members, and she runs over to our table, and she's going. Mm. And um, what's what's so funny is I remember my colleagues next to me with that old Southern uh, sonorous Southern accent says, "Girl, what's wrong with you?" <laughs> and uh, she's going, mm. and I realize she's choking to death. And so I got up and I did the Heimlich maneuver on her and, and a piece of cauliflower <laughs> just went rocketed out of her mouth right into the salad bowl of another one of my colleagues. And she started crying and, and, uh, and so forth because she had been without, she'd been all the way across um, the room. Oh. And she said, I, my friends are all laughing. Um, we're all laughing. And she said, and I go, and um, they are not noticing that I'm choking. And she said, and I saw you across the room. And she said, he will know what to do. And she said, so I ran 
straight to you. Well, her parents wrote me a beautiful note. And an older, um, you know, saying, we thank you so much for saving our daughter's life. And uh, an older colleague of mine read it, and he said, Larry, you need to save that. And he said, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. He says, you need to start a box in which you put all the little notes that you will begin to receive over the years because he says, I promise you, you're going to get plenty of, of bad ones. You are going to get people who are going to write you and say, I mean, we were talking about that actually, yeah. the ABS you know, segment of the show. Right, right. People will write you and, and they feel free to do that. They will say the most vicious things to you. Uh, because they didn't like an article. And, and again, we're not talking about just simply disagreeing with what you say. We're talking about going after you personally, yes. that, um, that people will do that. And so he said, you know, you need to start a little box because when you get those harsh letters and notes from people and now, you know, emails, he said, I go to my box. And he said, I go to my box and I will take out a note from a student or from a parent or from a colleague or a friend that says, hey, Jim, you're a good guy and I'm so grateful to you. And he says, it's my way of, of remembering, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as this person says that I am. And I encourage, I encourage people who are out there, start your own little box because there are going to be days that are rough. There are going to be days where you're going to begin to, to doubt yourself and you're going to begin to wonder, you know, am I the worst human being on the planet? And where you can go and you can just go pull a little note from your box. You know, none of us are as, is, you know, we're, we're never as, as, as great as maybe our fans think we are or as awful as our detractors want to say we are. But it is a good little uplifting way to remember um, that there, you know, that there's some good things that you've done. And so when you get those notes, don't just read them and, you know, put them on the refrigerator and throw them in the trash, save them, put them in a box. And when you get low, go and pull one out. That's fantastic. So I need to know, did you paint the box? Did your mom you know, I do actually, that? I actually painted that when I was a child. Wow. Yes, I did. You know, I painted those, uh, those flowers on there when I was a little kid. Well, it's a beautiful box and it's a beautiful idea. So... That's fantastic. Yeah, so start your box. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll start a the box. The Amy Beth is Great box. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I will have no additions to the Amy Beth is Great box. Uh, but that's okay. You can, and then you can share a letter um, when we need it, because I, I have a feeling we're going to need it. Um, Y'all, thank you for tuning in, for being a part of the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you feel equipped, um, aware. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> they say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs> 